pray together. Heavenly merciful Father, we thank you for the truths that we just sang about Christ and his work in redemption and salvation. And as we also just sang in the coming of the church, the coming of your people, the assembling of your bride, Christ came to seek and save the lost and bring us into the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, God, that your plan from before the foundation of the world was so perfect, executed by God the Son. Now you leave God the Spirit dwelling in us as we seek to draw near to you and become more faithful followers of you. This morning as we prepare to open your word, I pray that that spirit, that he would come and open our eyes this morning to your word. Whether we are believers here this morning, that you would open our eyes to to more glorify your great name. Or if there's anyone here this morning that has never put their trust in Christ for salvation, that the spirit would open their eyes to the truth of their need Christ. Hopefully this text specifically this morning would, would show them that working for earning a salvation is something that is not possible. The only hope we have is in Christ Jesus alone. Realize all this in his name this morning. Amen. Well, this morning we will begin a series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5 through 7. If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 5, that's where we'll be this morning. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the closest thing that a Christian has to, to a manifesto in all of Holy Scripture. Countless books and sermons and thoughts recorded on this text. And, and really, by the time it's done, Jesus will have said some of the most famous and enduring teachings the world will will ever know. And even if you've never studied these chapters of Scripture, you'll you'll recognize major themes and major sections of it when you you hear it. And if you're like me, you've heard so many different interpretations of this sermon that it gets kind of confusing as to what we're looking at. So today, my modest goal is to take a long look at the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes, starting in chapter 5, verse 2 in Matthew. And I'm only going to cover the first four Beatitudes this morning. There are eight. And that is not only because I'm long-winded, but it is also because it would seem that the first four Beatitudes really focus on the disciples' relationship to God. second set seemed to focus more on the disciples' relationship to neighbor. So let's look first at chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. They say this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Well, before we jump into verse 3 and look at that first beatitude, just a couple of observations on verses 1 and 2 to make sure we set our minds in the right frame for this sermon. First thing that we see in verse 1 is that though he had crowds, he is speaking to his disciples. So this writing, this sermon, is primarily meant for those who are already committed to following Christ and his teaching. And that idea only now deepens on this side of the cross in Christ's resurrection. So as we look at these Beatitudes, understand that this is not about how to enter God's kingdom. But these Beatitudes show us what the disciple of Christ will look like upon entering that kingdom. And the entrance to that kingdom is found only in faith, by faith, in Christ alone. So with that being said, let us look at these Beatitudes. Now I've been saying that word again and again, and maybe you have a Bible that has a little heading that said these are the Beatitudes. What do I mean when I say that word? Well, Beatitude is, is defined as blessedness or happiness of the highest kind, used for the joys of heaven. So beatitude, a beatitude is a lot like the word blessed, or blessed as we will see again and again in these verses this morning. It's to be made happy, but so much deeper than that. A heavenly happiness, a holy joy. That's what's on the table this morning in these beatitudes. Let's look at the first one, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. Those who are blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, one commentator said this. To be poor in spirit is not the lack of courage or lack of financial acumen, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. It confesses one's unworthiness before God and utter dependence on Him. We are spiritually poor meaning that we have a deficiency in our spiritual bank account. So what Jesus is saying this morning and in the Sermon on the Mount is that we don't bring any deposits or down payments to our salvation. Those who would enter the kingdom of God are those who would be poor in spirit, those who would realize that they're at a deficiency and they need something from God. Oftentimes, too many times, and in too many commentaries, I can attest for this, the idea of being spiritually poor and economically poor get conflated. Typically happens if you read Luke chapter 6, which is the retelling of Sermon on the Mount in Luke, where Luke just says, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. But I would caution you in thinking that this, this has only to do with economic status, but I would see more that... Matthew is saying explicitly what Luke is saying implicitly. Matthew is saying more directly what Luke is implying. We are not spiritually elevated because we are financially depressed. There is no virtue in being economically poor. Jesus is speaking of the deficiency in our spiritual life that that only can be solved by Christ. And the 
this idea carries itself all the way back into the Old Testament. In, in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 12, uh, the prophet there says, But I will leave in your midst a people humbled and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Or Jesus will go on in later in the book of Matthew in verse uh, 5 of chapter 11 that says, the, the blind will receive their sight and the lame will walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have the good news preached to them. It's so interesting about Jesus speaking about himself and as, as quoting Isaiah is that every malady, every, every condition gets its perfect outcome. The blind receive sight The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And what do the the dead are raised up? And what do the poor get? Do they get riches? And and No, what do they get? They get the good news of Jesus Christ. So we don't want to conflate the idea of economic poverty and spiritual poverty, but we want to understand that the greatest gift, the greatest need that all who were poor of spirit have is to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's how Jesus opens the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. He says, to enter my kingdom, you must understand, you enter with a deficiency. You don't come, you don't bring your good works, you don't bring your ideals, you don't bring your morality. You bring nothing but the sin required for salvation. Enter the kingdom, we are poor in spirit. C.H. Spurgeon said this, the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. Those who are poor in spirit are those who claim ownership of the kingdom, as it says in verse 3. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what what is this kingdom? And there are many things that we could say about the kingdom of heaven. Here are just a few quick bullet points about what the Gospels say about the kingdom of heaven. First, it is used interchangeably with the phrase kingdom of God. So if you're reading the, the Gospels and you hear... Matthew, Mark, or Luke speak of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Those phrases are used interchangeably. Jesus is the king who sits on the throne of this kingdom. Right? Jesus is the Messiah, the king of the Jews. This kingdom is also not of this world. Jesus said that before Pontius Pilate in John 18, verse 36. And I would also say that this kingdom has an already and not yet perspective for us, meaning when Christ shows up on the scene and he inaugurates the kingdom of heaven now through his preaching and through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, but the ultimate fulfillment of this kingdom will come in the second return. So he reigns and rules now. We sang songs about that this morning. He sits on the throne now. His kingdom is coming now, but the fullness of that king, kingdom comes in glory in his second coming. And and to piggyback off of that, this kingdom comes through piece by piece as God sees fit. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, that's in chapter 6, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount, we'll get to it. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom comes through on earth as it is in heaven, piece by piece. It is of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, because it has heavenly origins. Another observation of chapter 3 is that this beatitude is one of the few that is written in present tense. And a lot, again, can be said about that, but I would caution you to maybe not put too much stock in that. 
Often when we read the future tense, it's meant primarily to show that this is guaranteed, not necessarily that it comes completely at a later date. So therefore, we must say that these Beatitudes are just like the kingdom of God itself. We experience them in part now, and then we experience them in full the final day. So those who are poor in spirit towards God now are in the the kingdom of heaven now. Those who understand their spiritual deficiency know their place in this kingdom, and they know that Christ's gift and discipleship and entrance is, therefore, giving them the kingdom of heaven now. So though they are poor, they are rich. This is the opposite of what the world would tell us. That's the whole theme that I'm going to give you as we go through these Beatitudes, is is that what Jesus said is the opposite of what the world tells us. And I would also tell you that this is a fight of faith for many of us, all of us, really, if we're being honest with ourselves, that the world indoctrinates us from our earliest days, saying that blessings in this life are wealth, time, trinkets, comfort, ease. These are the blessings that we should be pursuing To be a self-made man or woman is the dream. You can do it. I can do it. I'm able. You're able. I'm strong. You're strong. I don't need anybody's help. That's not poor in spirit. It's proud in spirit. Not only is that not the model, it's the opposite of what Jesus calls to be blessed. We forget that. We forget that being poor in spirit is generating blessing for us. We all want to be blessed. Truly happy. But the fact is, we can only get truly happy, truly blessed, through the path that Christ provides, not the world's. And next in verse 4, Jesus points us to his second beatitude where he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So, again, what, what is Jesus actually saying here? And, and one commentator said it this way, It is not the sorrow of bereavement to which Christ refers, but the sorrow of of repentance. So this mourning, it really it builds off of being poor in spirit. Not because we've lost something or lost someone, but that we now have an accurate view of our relationship in light of God, and therefore it causes us to mourn our sin and our state. John Stott said this, I fear that we evangelical Christians, by making much of grace, sometimes make light of sin. There is not enough sorrow for sin among us. We should experience more godly grief in our Christian repentance. So so what does godly grief look like? And I, I went round and round in my mind about how to describe this godly grief. And the word I kept coming back to was flippancy. Not taking seriously the things in this life that demand being serious. And as a generally flippant guy. Maybe that's why I landed there. But it truly is this idea of if we never take seriously what we should, we take too seriously what we don't. And what Jesus is calling those to be blessed in is that when we mourn, when we truly understand our, our poverty and spirit, it causes us to, to look to ourselves and say, I don't bring anything to the table. I bring sin and it, and it grieves me that my great God would see my sin so clearly. And this grief is not generated within ourselves. There are examples in the New Testament of those who had a grief that did not lead to repentance. Think of Judas. Judas gives up Jesus to the Jews and 
ultimately, he's, he's the linchpin that brings forth the plan of Christ's death. And, and he tries to return the money, and it's pretty clear he's sad about it, but there's no sign of true repentance before his life ends. Or Simon the magician in Acts 8, who, who went so far as to be baptized and believed that he was a believer, and yet tried to buy the Holy Spirit off of Peter in Samaria. He was grieved in that fact, and he said, Peter, pray for me that something bad might not happen. So there's repentance, or there, excuse me, there's, there's regret that isn't repentance. So we need supernatural help in this way. But, but the good news is that this is a, not a never-ending beating that you're giving yourself because of your unworthiness before God. But the outcome of godly grief is godly comfort. It's the, that's the beatitude. Those who mourn will be comforted. For the second time, we see this idea of the already, not yet, the now and then. Our comfort is guaranteed in part now, but that comfort will come in full for sure when Christ returns. If you would like to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul speaks of this and, and God's role in our comfort in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so, too, so through Christ we shall abundantly share in comfort as well. So God doesn't promise us an easy life. He doesn't promise us that everything will go the way we want it to go. But he does promise us that he is the God of all comfort and the God of all mercy. And Jesus promises us that those who mourn will be comforted. And that process is a blessing to us. Again, how utterly countercultural Jesus is being here. Who can sit here this morning and say, I have a robust understanding of what it means to grieve in a godly way. I can't. Comfort is a powerful taskmaster. What can I do today to take this godly grief and stick it in the back of my mind? I don't want to think about my status before God. I don't want to think about anything. I want to zone out, be comfortable, do my 80 years, and call it a life. But in a, in, a, in a real way, we can actually learn from bereavement. Though I would not say that's the type of mourning Jesus is speaking about. As an example, there is a sobriety and a gravity in feeling the loss of a loved one. And I think this is what makes Jesus such a master communicator, is that he knows how to show us the way of holiness and blessing through helping us understand the things that we experience in our daily life. For those of you that have lost a close loved one, you know the weight of that. And, and, and the, the trial in that. And Christ is saying that kind of weight, that kind of trial, that, that kind of feeling of, of understanding that is, is what we mourn over in our sins. So it's okay to press into mourning over your status before God because ultimately it will lead to comfort and it will lead to blessing. And where Jesus goes next back in Matthew 5 is in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So most English translations have the word meek. Maybe you have gentle, uh, but the idea or the definition of meekness is 
humility, resignation, submission to God's will, submission without murmuring or complaining, opposed to pride, arrogance, and division. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who speaks on the Sermon on the Mount, says this, meekness can be defined this way. It is essentially a true view of oneself expressing itself in an attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. So do you see how Jesus is is building this idea where, where he says... Those who are in the kingdom are those who understand their, their poorness in spirit, and it, it causes them to, to mourn over their sin and, and their brokenness. And then God comes through and comforts them in a major way, says, I am with you, I am for you. And then what that generates us in us is a humble confidence and a meekness, an ability to say, I can't believe it. How? Why me, Right? I think the, the doctor diagnosed so well here. What posture can we have other than to say, why me? What, what have I done to receive something so great? I am poor in spirit, and it wrecks me, and yet you show up and comfort me again and again, and that just generates in me this meekness, this, this wow. This, this, I can't believe that, that you would treat a sinner like me so well. We mourn only to be comforted, to only propel us into a hard attitude of humility and gratitude to Christ so that we no longer submit to ourselves. We submit to God. We glorify God. We desire to to not demand of God, but to say, your will be done, not mine. And what is the guarantee of this meekness? It says that we shall inherit the earth. Now, if if you're like me and you're you're the logical type, you're thinking, okay, Brett, how are you going to get around this one? You're saying everything's got an already and a not yet. What is the already of, of taking over the earth? And while I don't know that anybody has it all figured out, we hear phrases these days like taking dominion or taking this back or, or, or making up this ground. But I would seem to, it would seem to me through the text of Scripture that, that the kingdom does and will break through again and again. Remember, I've already quoted to you the Lord's Prayer that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we also have to put that together with what Jesus did say to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. So as we think about this theology of, of this already, not yet, and this kingdom coming, we, we have inherited everything that we need in this life for life and godliness. And we see again and again that, that God's uh, plans and kingdom break through through the salvation of sinners, through nations coming to the Lord, through people groups finding Christ and, and people breaking through. And God does great and amazing things in this world. He's, and he sits on the throne now. And his kingdom breaks forth again and again and again. But that breaking through always comes with trial and struggle and lost because we're eagerly awaiting the coming of our Savior. So we don't inherit the kingdom now in its fullness, but we eagerly await God's kingdom, and we see it break through through the simplest simplest miracle we see, which is Christ being made much of and people being saved. So I'm not convinced that the full inheritance of this world will be in this life, but it will be in the, the time when Christ returns. But this is not to reduce the scope of the promise 
or how utterly countercultural this is. Who is inheriting the world now? We would say the brash, the arrogant, the fame seeker, the influencer. These are those who are taking over the world. Meekness never sells anymore. Earnestness doesn't draw a crowd. But there's no blessing in influence and fame and brashness. Remember what Jesus will say in chapter 16 of this same book. What does it benefit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Inheritance doesn't come from taking dominion. It comes from meekness and seeking God's kingdom, not setting up our own in the interim. But finally, in verse 6, finally for today, verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So coming right off the inheritance of of the world, we see that blessing comes through strongly desiring Christ's righteousness. What, What do we mean by righteousness? We mean someone who is just, who adheres to, holds to, walks through the divine law. He is holy in heart, observant of all that God commanded. Commands. He is a righteous, right person, right? So we, we, we throw that word around a lot in Christian circles to be righteous, but the big picture is those who walk in accordance with the scriptures by the grace that God supplies for the glory he deserves. That's righteousness. And what are we to be? We are to be hungry and thirsting for this righteousness. One of those, hunger or righteousness, is enough to kill you if taken to its end. But we get both. So this is complete desire. Jesus is saying we, have to, we need an all-out sprint, an all-out full-court press on getting after righteousness. We can't stop. We can't quit. We can't slow down because you wouldn't stop or quit or slow down if you were in the desert looking for water or if it had been two weeks since you ate and you saw bread in the distance. You would go all out. And that's what Jesus is saying is those who hunger and chase after this righteousness, they shall be blessed they shall be satisfied. There's also a, a, an interesting component here of, of the fact that our, our eye, our view changes to the world. D.A. Carson said this. These people who hunger and thirst, not only that they may be made righteous, but that justice may be done everywhere. All unrighteousness grieves them and makes them homesick for the new heaven and the new earth. They're satisfied neither with just their personal righteousness or anything else. What they taste now in their pursuit of righteousness just whets their appetite for more. Ultimately, they will not be satisfied without and until the coming of the kingdom. So I'm not trying to contradict what I just said about inheriting the kingdom. But what I'm saying is I think the picture is becoming clearer. The more we know God, the more we pursue God's righteousness, the more we see that that righteousness is not being pursued in the world. We see how scales are not balanced. God's true justice isn't being pursued in our cultures or our institutions. But this doesn't make us justice warriors, those who try to solve these complex issues with worldly solutions. But we seek the true king, Jesus Christ. And we will only be satisfied in this life By the blessing of seeking righteousness that only comes from above. God satisfies. Nothing else does. It's like popcorn with no butter or a well-done steak. From a distance, it looks good, but when you taste it, it is not. And 
You can fight me on that all you want. Well done steak is basically trash. That's, that's the firmest stand I'll take today on anything. Anyway. But we see that there's only one good, and it's God's good. So we look to God. We're satisfied in him and him alone. Like I said before, from, from here, these Beatitudes pivot and then focus more towards on our relationship to each other. So this ends the section this morning that we're going to look at. And again, one commentator summed them up this way, and I, I felt this helped capture the flow of what I was trying to tell you this morning. The Beatitudes paint a comprehensive portrait of a Christian disciple. We see him alone first on his knees before God, acknowledging his spiritual poverty and mourning over it. This makes him meek or gentle in all of his relationships since honesty compels him to allow others to think of him what God does think of him. Yet, he is far from allowing for sinfulness because he is hungering and thirsting for righteousness, longing to grow in grace and in goodness. The question for you this morning is, what do you think of as you hear this? My, My hope for you is that it's being revealed to you that this is not some standard that you can muscle out by yourself. Remember, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, not to show them how to enter this kingdom. What does it look like to be a member of the kingdom? Meaning this, if you're trying to live up to this standard or any standard, Jesus ends chapter 5 with a chilling line that you need to hear. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So I sincerely desire that the Holy Spirit is revealing to you that perfection is the standard, and none of us live up to that standard. You might be doing better than your neighbor, better than your cousin, better than that guy at school, but that's not God's standard. His standard is perfection. And Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We're not even close. We're in desperate need for a rescue from this situation. Our sin has separated us from God, and the only remedy to this problem is the preacher we've been sitting under this morning, Jesus Christ. If you're sitting here this morning and you see a need for salvation, acknowledge that you cannot live up to God's standard and turn to Christ. Repent of your desire to earn salvation by good deeds and put your trust in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection alone as the only payment God accepts for our sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For those of you here this morning that have put your trust in Christ, the only point of application that I would have for you is pursue blessings. Our God is more than willing to incentivize your devotion to him with the gift of holy happiness. He doesn't tell us to be poor, to mourn, to be meek, and to hunger, because then you can just gut it out to the end, and it might be pretty good then. It might be okay once you get to the end. You just gut out all of this devotion and whatnot. You might, you might get a little bit bigger mansion in heaven. That's not what he says. He says that these, blessed, these blessings are worth pursuing. They're not cold, green vegetables. Maybe you feel like you can't endure this. And that's something I want to say this morning. Maybe you feel like, I, I, I can't, I, I'm, I'm afraid that I have, I don't have it in me to confront this, to be poor, to be meek. To, I don't know that I have it in me. 
first I would say to you that's a, that's a good inclination. And I want to read to you what Jesus will say in Matthew 11, verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Christ and walk with him. Pursue what he says in these Beatitudes and trust the promise that there is blessing on the other end of mourning. There is comfort. There is meekness. There is inheritance. There is everything you could ever want in Christ Jesus, by Christ Jesus, for Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus. We need God's grace to be able to keep these promises in our mind. We need God's grace to strengthen us, which is why Jesus says, take up my yoke, my yoke of grace that gives you strength. So we want to pick up Christ's yoke, God's grace. We walk not by the strength that we can supply, but by the grace and strength that God supplies through Christ Jesus, by the work of the Spirit. Maybe it's not an endurance that you need. But you've always been just the kind of guy or gal that, that just wants to outwork the problem. The Beatitudes cannot make sense as a to-do list. They only make sense as a roadmap to walking with Christ and pursuing blessing. There is no coin-operated blessing machine in this life. If you think that the Beatitudes are just, if I work really hard at being meek or weak or whatever, then God will have to bless me. It's a simple math equation. And all I got to do is hustle harder and I'll get the blessings stronger. But that's not what Jesus says here. This, this teaching is too radical for that. If we're truly trusting what Christ says here, we're pursuing these blessings by pursuing these attributes through humility with Christ. Again, Jesus speaks to that too in Matthew 11 where he says, Come to me all of you who labor and are heavy laden. We don't carry ourselves across the finish line in this Christian life. We need radical help from a radically gracious God. We do know this, that though the teaching is radical, when we pursue these attributes, we pursue these things through the humility of Christ by the power that he supplies, God will be faithful to meet us with blessing. Every Christian I know wants to be blessed. And many Christians that I see pursue a lot of different ways to be blessed. Sadly, too often, those blessings they pursue are these broken cisterns that cannot hold true biblical blessing. But if we look to the words of Christ and we lean in to where he says blessing is, we can finally be confident that we will gain those blessings. And that blessing finds its root in the nearness of the Savior in the presence of the Father. Father, it is so refreshing and good to hear about you this morning. That that your plan for us is so perfect and that, that you offer us blessing and you offer us joy and happiness in this life, in surprising places. You meet us in our weakness and you show us blessing. You comfort us. You help us. You're the God who who gives and takes away, and you do it all for your glory. Thank you, God, that you often give us blessing by taking away. You often give us much by showing us little. And in that, you're so abundantly 
gracious to us. My prayer this morning, God, is that if there is anyone here that has not put their trust in Christ, they would turn to him now. They would trust in him. And for those of us who have already entered your kingdom of heaven and are living it now, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth of these blessings, these beatitudes, that we would seek you diligently, that you would give us eyes to see ourselves as we truly are so that we can see Christ as he truly is and that we can give you the kind of glory and worship you truly deserve. So good to be together this morning and thinking deeply about what Christ has done. Pray these things in his mighty saving name. Amen.